Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Well, this morning we are uh, in the middle of our series, our summer series on the Psalms. And uh, this morning we are going to be in Psalm 51, uh, which in some ways deals with this uh, confronting our sin, uh, deals with confronting our hang-ups, our habits, um, our addictions, and realizing like that we can't do this on our own, and that we need God to come in and set us free and to restore us um, in ways that we, we never can. And so I want to begin this morning by just opening up God's Word, turn into Psalm 51, in hearing David's encounter with God in the light of his sin, in light of the worst sin that he ever committed in his life um, with Bathsheba and killing Uriah to cover that up. And so I want to enter into that this morning. And so if you guys would stand, it's going to be on the screen. I think it helps us to move around a little bit, stand up to engage, just engage the words. If that means reading them out loud, if that means just looking at them, if that means pulling out your phone and looking at them on, on your screen and that's right in front of you or in your Bibles, do that. But Psalm 51, a Psalm of David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach your transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up its walls of Jerusalem. Then, they will, then will you delight in the righteous sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole offerings, and the bulls will be all offered on your altar. Would you guys pray with me? Dear God, we thank you for today. We thank you for David, and we thank you for the ways that he encountered your mercy and your grace and your love in the places where he deserved it the least, in the places where he deserved condemnation, where he deserved being cast out. God, you met him with your character, you met him with your righteousness, and you met him with your judgment. God, you are mercy and you are just. You are both of these things. And God, I thank you that you meet us in the same ways that you meet David. 
So God, open our hearts to you. Open our hearts to your good news and the work that you've done this morning. God, restore our joy to our bones this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. And so this morning, this psalm is written in a historical context. It's written by David when Nathan the prophet comes and reveals to David that this cover-up, the sin that David thought that he was covering up, the sin that he thought that he was keeping secret was seen by God. And that God knew what David was up to, that God knew that David took Bathsheba and committed adultery with her, that God knew that David took Uriah and had him murdered to cover it up, that God saw. And it's in this place where, Nathan, where the prophet is, a, is confronting David that David's gutted. Like he's, he knows that he's been caught. And not only that has he been caught, but he, like, he sees the horror of what he has done. And he writes the psalm in response to that. But before we get to that, what I want us to do this morning is I want us to see how did David get to where he was in his sin? And then how did he respond with this psalm when he was confronted by his sin? And I, wanted that, I want David's life to be a, a teaching point for us to see how he fell into sin so that we could avoid that, and then also so that we could see how he responds to the psalm and so that we can see what is true about him and is also true for us and about how his relationship with God that is true for him is also true for us and that the gospel has been done. It's even more true today because of the blood of Jesus. That's what I want for us this morning, okay? So I want us to start by looking at the story. And the story of David begins in first. In 2 Samuel, chapter, chapter 10, I mean chapter 11. So chapter 11, verse 1, it'll be up on the screen. This is what it says. It says, in the spring of the year, time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, this first verse, you might read and be like, oh, that's just some nice information, nice historical information when kings go out to war. David sent Joab. This is what's going on. Now, this is significant, and this is written intentionally to set up this story of David and his sin with Bathsheba. And so I wanted to, us to read it a little bit closer. Riley showed this to me a couple weeks ago. We were talking about this scripture, and he's like, did you see this there? And I was like, no, I've never seen that before. And it just so happens I'm teaching on this psalm today. And so I just want to quote Riley as my source here. But it says, in the spring of the year, when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. David's the king. David is a king of war. He's successful at war. He's good at it. But he's like, nah, I'm not going to go this year. It's war season. I'm going to sit this one out. And he sends Joab to go do his deeds for him. And he also sends all of Israel and so David remains at Jerusalem. And so when it says that all of Israel went, it meant that all of the men that were fit for fighting went. And so if all the men that were fit for fighting went and David's sitting in Jerusalem, guess what the city's full of? Women. You can see where the story is going already. David has put himself kind of in the wrong place at the wrong place time. And I think oftentimes when we fall into sin, it's because we too have placed ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like David should have been at war. 
He should have been with his men. He should have been leading them. He should have been their fearless commander. Instead, he's got his feet up in Jerusalem. And I think that oftentimes our sin begins before we actually sin. And it has to do with where are we positioning ourselves? Where are we placing ourselves? And a lot of times we just say, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just this victim of my consequence. But the question is, is like, did you ever have a chance to stop? Did you ever have a chance to relocate? And in this, uh, in this world of recovery, um, I was talking with some people in the, in the recovery community, and they were telling me there's this acronym that's really helpful um, that helps you kind of be aware that you might fall into addiction or that you might fall back into relapsing. And that acronym is HALT. It just HALT. It's like stop. And um, so the HALT, what it stands for, it stands for hungry. It stands for angry. It stands for lonely. And it stands for tired. And I don't know about you, but whenever I'm feeling one of these things, whenever I'm hungry, whenever I'm lonely, whenever I'm tired, whenever I'm angry, like, I generally don't make good decisions. I generally find myself kind of set up like David, where, like, the scene is already set, and I'm, bo- I'm almost bound to enter into, into some poor, sinful decision. I mean, anyone ever go to the grocery store hungry, right? I mean, that's, like, one of the worst decisions. I mean, that finance 101 is eat a good meal before you go to the grocery store, Right? I mean, but it is. Anyone be tired? I mean, there are so many poor decisions that I've realized that I've made because I'm tired, because I don't get enough sleep. And so that starts with, do I get enough sleep? Do I get enough quality of sleep to avoid being tired? It's not like, oh, I'm tired. But now if you're feeling tired, it's kind of this warning sign of like, you need to halt. You need to stop. You need to to change your trajectory because your trajectory is on its way to possibly being sin. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be these things, but it's this good reminder of like when you find yourself in a circumstance and you hear the Holy Spirit start to, to tug at your heart, because the Holy Spirit's job is to, con- to reveal to us and convict us of sin, right? So the Holy Spirit's going to throw up some warning lights when we're in the wrong spot. He's gonna, we need to listen to that, and we need to listen to that stop because what will eventually happen is that we'll end up sinning And when we sin, we miss the mark. That's what sin means. The word sin means that we miss the mark. And there's oftentimes repercussions that happen to our sin. Because the reality is, is that our sin never happens in isolation. Our sin, even if we think that we've hit it, even if we think we keep it all clean, ends up affecting the community and the people around us. And we see this with the sin of David. And so this is the setup, is that David's in the wrong place at the wrong time because he's chosen to be. He did not go out to war. And then the next, verse 2, like, sets it up. If there's any question if verse 1 was setting up, setting up this story, verse 2, like, points it right out. And it says, it happened. It's like the author knows that you know that this thing's about to happen by naming it it. It happened. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw on the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about this woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanliness. When she returned to her house, then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And this is when David starts to realize, I messed up. 
I made a mistake here. I've been going down the wrong path. I have sinned. And David, David could have hit the brakes here. He could have hit the brakes here. He could have adjusted. He could have addressed his sin. But instead, he goes to try and grab for more power, to try and control the situation just a little bit further. Because in his mind, there's still a way that we can keep this quiet, that we can keep this secret, that no one needs to know that this happened. And you and I do this, right? We do this when we're about to be revealed, when our secret's about to come out, or when we think that, like, we know that we've flubbed over here, and we're like, but maybe we can cover it up and we can fix it. If we, if we, if we oversteer, if we overcorrect, maybe we can fix it over here. I've got an example of this. It's not necessarily in my life, but it's a fun video and illustration to show, like, what happens when we sin. So yesterday, um, I took the Mini Cooper, I got a Mini Cooper this early June, and I took it autocrossing with um, Andy Nada. So Andy's in our church. He loves autocrossing, and I'm like, he's like, you've got this Mini Cooper. You should come. And I was like, all right, I'll come. And so I bring the Mini Cooper autocrossing. And autocrossing, if you don't know, is basically a road course set up with cones that you get to drive your street car on, um, and it's loads of fun. But in there, there's kind of like a line that you want to follow as you're driving your car. And if you don't follow the line correctly, you will sin. You will miss the mark, and there will be consequences for your sins. So I want to show you a video um, of what that could look like um, in my Mini Cooper yesterday. Don't worry, the Mini Cooper's fine. It's, it's, in, good, it's in good shape. But I want, to, I want to show you a video of this, uh, of what it would look like um, when we sin. So it's going to start at the starting line. That way you can just kind of get a feel for what it's like. So these are gates. You want to go through the cones that are the gates, and you don't want to miss them. Um, because if you do, you disqualify. Now, if you hit a cone, it's a penalty, okay? So there's a penalty, but it's not as bad as disqualifying if you hit a cone. So this part's good. We're doing good. I've got my line. Things are going well. I'll let you know when I start sinning, and I'll let you know when the sin starts to show its, its, um, its consequences. So, yep, this is good, this is good. So, in this corner, I start going a little too fast, and I start to lose my line. And I'm not looking ahead anymore, and I enter this spot a little too fast, and I'm like, oh, I need to turn left. And as I turn left, I'm like, uh-oh, I need to fix it, and then I can't. Um, and I bring it around. Um, and so the sin, I'll let you finish it, but the sin, where I got off my line was in the middle of that corner. One of the rules of autocross is that the outcome of the corner is already determined based on what you've already done. And so, yep, there it brings it to the end. And so the rule is that you're kind of operating kind of five seconds ahead in your mind in the present because what's going to happen in five seconds is going to be affected by what you're doing right now. And what happened is in that corner, I got going a little too fast. I lost control of the car to the degree to where I couldn't hold my line. And I, I realized in that moment, I was like, I've, I've errored. And especially as I drove into that spot where I started to swerve really hard, I was like, I've really errored. And I could have made the choice of hitting the cones that were in front of me, and that would have just been a penalty, and I could have like continued on, probably would have made the course. But instead, I was like, nope, I can make this gate over here. And so I corrected, and I made the gate, but then I spun out. And so I oversteered, I overcorrected to try and save some face, and I thought maybe I could power it back, and I lost control and spun out. 
and came closer than what I ever would have wanted to of hitting that guy in the blue shirt, right? I mean, um, so this is kind of what happens in our sin. This is what happens with David. David's like, I've, you know, he's kind of going around the curve. He's like, I've sinned with Bathsheba, and oh, she's pregnant. Um, here, comes the, here comes the swerve, and he's like, well, there's one more trick up my sleeve. I'm going to invite his wife home. And, you know, he'll do the reasonable thing that a man would do when he comes home. He'll lay with his wife, and then this will all take care of itself, and everyone will think that this baby is his, and, and we can move on with the world. It's a, it's a cover-up. Like, David is engaged in high-level cover-up of the sin in his life. And so he invites Uriah home, and Uriah's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go see my wife when I've been out to battle and none of the other men got to come home and they're not sleeping with their wives tonight. And so until they come home and get to sleep with their wives, I'm not sleeping with mine. David's like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? So he's like, sends Uriah back and he's like, you know what? We're just going to have Uriah murdered on the front lines. Bathsheba will become a widow. I will get to come in as the king and save her, and then she can have this baby, and I will look like the hero. Like, this is, like, best-case scenario. And so David has Uriah shipped off. He gets murdered. Word gets back to David that he's been murdered. David takes Bathsheba as his wife, and she comes into the palace, and he thinks everything is fine. Everything is good. That no one has seen what has happened, but the Lord who sees, the God who sees, has seen and this is what happens in chapter 12. And so in chapter 12, it says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city. So he tells him this, this parable. Okay, so he's going to tell him the story. Nathan shows up to David. and He's like, I'm going to tell you the story. And this is the story that he says. He said, There are two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew it up with him and with his children. And it used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, but the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David was angry. And it was greatly kindred against this man who had done this thing. And Nathan said, as long as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing, <laughs> this is what he says to Nathan. He says, as long as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And this is where the gut punch comes. Nathan said, you are that man. You are that man, David. And I believe it's there in that space, in that time, where David is just gutted and he's able to see the horror of all that he had committed, of all that he had done up until that point. And I think we have these moments in our lives. We have these moments in our lives where God shows up and he, the Holy Spirit does the thing that the Holy Spirit is called to do and he convicts us of our sins. And he makes it plain to us. And we are filled with sorrow. It's like that, that moment where you're just like, your gut is kind of up in your stomach. You, just wanna, you, just want, you might want to just like throw up a little bit, right? I don't know if you've ever been there. But, but this, is, this is where David's at. And it's just like, 
what do you do? What do you do in this situation? What do we do with our sin? Because the reality is that David's sin of adultery and murder, there's, there's no sacrifice in the Jewish law that takes care of that. It's not like he could go in to the temple and be like, here's a bunch of bulls, here's a bunch of rams, God, make it better, God, forgive me because I've done this. There's nothing. There's nothing he can do. And that's why in the psalm, you know, he says in the psalm, he says, for you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. But he says, you would not be pleased with a burnt offering. But what he realizes is that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. So David is gutted to the point where he is filled with, he feels guilt and he feels sorrow and I'm sure he feels some shame. And a lot of times when we talk about our sins, those are feelings that we don't want to feel, that we don't think that we should feel because of Jesus. And that is true. But the reality is that guilt and sorrow and shame are great motivators for pointing us towards Jesus and towards repentance and towards transformation. And so we can't just ignore them and just be like, you know what, God took care of it through Jesus, kind of like intellectually, and then move on. God wants our hearts to break for what we've done. And we see this in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's talking to the people of Corinth, and he says this. He says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved. He's like, I'm not sorry that you were grieved. I'm not sorry that you were gutted. I'm not sorry that you were, that you were sorry. I'm not sorry that you felt guilt and shame. He says, because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And it's important that we get this clear. It's important that we get this clear. When we sin, we are guilty before God. And shame is the proper and right emotion, and guilt is the proper emotion to stand before God that we are guilty before. Okay? But there are two ways that that guilt and that shame can go. It can either motivate us towards repentance and having our hearts changed and our lives transformed and renewed like David's is throughout the psalm, or it can move us to a place where we're just filled with shame and guilt and that becomes our identity. And when that becomes our identity, we are in the wrong. And that is that worldly grief that leads to death. But I want you to know that there is a good grief that leads to repentance and salvation. And when we receive repentance, when we receive salvation from the Lord, then, and, and we receive and experience his forgiveness, then we get to throw all of that off. And it would never be right for us to continue to feel shame or guilt before a God who has forgiven us. But I think a lot of times we short step the process and we go to our intellectual thinking of like, well, Jesus covered that. And we don't allow ourselves to really hurt the way that God has been hurt through our sins. We don't actually get to see the injustice that our sin has caused. Justice is a huge movement in our world today, and we want to fight against injustice. What I want you to know is that the word justice comes also from the word righteousness. And so if there's going to be righteousness, if there's going to be justice in the world, we have to get rid of unrighteousness. 
And righteousness is this idea that the world is the way that God intends it to be. And the reality is that when we sin before God, it's not how God intended the world to be. And we therefore act in a form of injustice. It was unjust of what David did to Bathsheba. It was unjust of what David did to Uriah. It was unjust of what David did to Bathsheba and Uriah in the face of the entire city. It was unjust of what he did to make the guards go and do those things that they did to come and bring her. But the beautiful thing is that God brings justice and he brings restoration. Even though Bathsheba suffers much in this space of life, she then gives birth to Solomon. And then she's mentioned in the liturgy of Jesus. And then Solomon, as he's writing Proverbs, writes about the wisdom that his mother gave him. And in that, he's talking about Bathsheba. God is a God who brings restoration and brings justice in the places of injustice. The question is, is are we ever allowed to let our hearts grieve with God the injustices that we commit? And I believe that that's what this psalm's about. We don't get to stay there. In no way do we get to stay there and take that on as our identity. If we do that, we've continued to just sit in sin, and that's that worldly shame that Paul's talking about. But there's this motivator that moves us to repentance, to this place of like, what am I going to do? And we kind of sense that in David of like, oh, God, like, what, what should I do here? What should I do in light of this? And I think we can turn to the psalm and see kind of six movements that David works through as he goes through the psalm. And so David, as he writes the psalm, he just goes to God and he appeals to God's character of mercy and grace. Verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. He appeals to God's mercy and God's grace in his life, and he focuses on God. I mean, this is what we have to do in our sin, is that we have to turn to God and look at God and see what's true about him and allow that to become true about us. And so he looks upon God with his steadfast love. He says, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly with my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. In these two verses, David uses three words to describe his sin. The first one is transgressions, which says that you've crossed somebody. You know when someone's crossed you, that means that they've transgressed you. So he is admitting, he's confessing that I've transgressed the Lord. I have sinned against God. If you continue in Samuel, he confesses, I have sinned against the living God. And so he knows that he's transgressed him. And then he also calls his sin his iniquity. Which his iniquity is just like, he knows that from his mother's womb that he's been born a sinner. That being a sinner is a part of his state of being. And that he needs saved out of that. That he needs covered over from his iniquity. He is inadequate to meet the perfection and the standard that God requires before the law. And that he needs help. And then finally he says, cleanse me from my sin. And this sin is this, this miss the mark of what it is to miss the mark. He knows that he has missed it with Bathsheba and Uriah and the ways that he has lived his life. And so he cries out to God that God would, would take this away from him, that he would blot it out, that he would wash him, and that he would cleanse him. And this word cleanse means to de-sin. He's saying, God, de-sinify me, de-sin me. 
Make me righteous and just in your eyes. Help me make just decisions, not unjust ones, throughout my life. And so he comes to him and he appeals for mercy before God. And then in verses 3 through 5, he confesses his sin outright before God. He says, For I know my transgressions and my sins are ever before me. Against you and only you have I sinned, and I've done what is evil in your sight. And then he says, so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So he begins by appealing to God's mercy, but here he appeals to God's justice and God's judgment. And he knows that God would be just in casting David out from his presence and ending David's life. He knows that God is well within his rights to do whatever he wants to David in this moment because of the horrors of his sin and the fact that he is a sinner. And he's pleading to God that he would act both just with justice and with mercy. David doesn't know how God's going to do that yet, but he's asking, God, would you, would you do both? Because both are true to your character. You are completely merciful, but you are also completely just. And you are right to be that. And so he says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and my, in my sin did my mother conceive me. And so he's confessing his sin before the Lord. And we're called to do the same as well. We're called to come before Jesus and to come before God and to confess our sin as well. Because we're in the same boat as David. Like there is nothing you and I can do to make ourselves right before God. There's nothing. There's no sacrifice. There's no ritual. There's no coming to church enough. There's no perfect attendance award. There's nothing that we can do except confess our sins and admit that we're broken before God. And so this is what it says in John. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we have deceived ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For if we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not within us. The reality is that the good news of God has come and he has come to you and to me through Jesus. And it's through Jesus on the cross that both justice and mercy were raised up together at once. On the cross, Jesus died for us in our place with mercy. But he also died on behalf of our sins to take the judgment and the justice part for our sins. And so when we believe on him, we are saved. We are saved. That's the gospel. The gospel message is not something that we get to do, but it's something that God has done. And it's something that God has done on our behalf. And basically, David's praying, God, would you do the gospel for me? Would you do the gospel for me in this situation? Because there's nothing I can do. And I need you to step in and fill the void. And he knows that the, one of the best ways to, 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 to move to God, to come closer to God, is, is to begin to confess his sins before him. In James... James calls us to confess our sins not only to God, but also to one another. In James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has power at its working. Because of Jesus 
on the cross, we can be safe and we can confess our sins to one another and we can get real with one another like Karen was talking about. We can get real with one another. We can share our sins and we can get vulnerable with one another. We can be healed because of what Christ has done within us. Finally, in Romans chapter 3, I got ahead of myself a little bit, but the reality is that none of us are righteous. None of us are pure before God. In Romans chapter 3, it says, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of Asaph is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. They, the, peace of way to, the way of peace is not known to them, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the state that we live in. This is the world that we live in. I think if we're, we're, if we're honest, if we're really honest, and we allow God to pierce our souls, this is the state of our souls without him. This is the state of our souls without Jesus coming, without the gospel being done in our lives. Is that our hearts are full of evil desires and wicked intents. And I'm sure that inside of us, I know it's inside of me, there's this idea that if anyone really knew me, and if anyone really knew my thoughts, I'm not sure if they were capable of loving me. I'm not sure if I'd be able to save face in front of anyone. The reality is, is that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies with God, he saw all that. He saw all that in you. He saw all that in me. And he said, you know what? They're worth dying for. They're my son and they're my daughter. And this is where the psalm kind of take, takes a, a, a change and a turn. And you might miss it otherwise, but it's in verse 7. Verse 7, David requests this very interesting thing from God. He says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, who here knows what some hyssop is? Stephen, lay it on me. What's some hyssop? Yes. Yeah. So it's this, yeah, it's this plant that grew in Israel. It's kind of this brushy plant and they would dip it in blood and they would do kind of like ceremonial cleansing and rites over it. And the first place that it's mentioned is in Exodus, in the book of Exodus, where God is saving his people, where they have sacrificed a lamb for the Passover and that the way that God is going to save Israel is by the blood of this lamb, that they're going to take some hyssop and they're going to dip it in the bowl and they're going to rub it on the doorpost. And so when David says, clean me with hyssop, he's referring to this. And so this is what it says in Exodus. It says, Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, go select lambs yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the inlet of the two doorposts <laughs> with the blood that is in your basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until it is in the morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptian, and when he sees the blood on the inlet of the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses or to strike you down. David's saying, 
what you did to Israel, where they did not deserve salvation, where you performed the miracle, where you passed over them and you saved them. That's what I need. I need the blood of the lamb in my life to wash me and to clean me. And so Jesus shows up in the New Testament and what is he? He's the lamb of God. Jesus is the blood that cleanses us. He's the blood that transforms us. He's the one that cleanses us and makes us new in his sight and takes away our sins. And so if we go back to John chapter 1 again, I mean chapter 2, 1 John, we just read about it, like if we don't confess our sins or if we say that we are without sins, this is what he also says, continuing in chapter 2, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but... If anyone does sin, know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, or you could say Jesus Christ the just, for he is the perpetuation of our sins, but not only for our sins, but for the sins of the entire world. The blood of Jesus is the blood on the doorpost of eternity that we get to walk through, that we get to put on. But we have to be in this place like David, where, we, where we're crying out to him, where we realize that there is no good thing left in me, that, that before you, God, my good works are only like worthless rags. The gospel is not what you can do for God, but it is what God has done for you. And the question is, is have you believed that this morning? Have you believed that in your life? I know you've probably heard the gospel message a number of times, but do you believe it? Do you believe that the Lord wants to clean you with hyssop this morning? That he wants to cover over you your shame and your guilt? Because when we turn to Romans again, to chapter 3, it says this. It says, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know this. But it says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Jesus Christ. Like he sets you up, he's like, everyone sinned, it's all bad. But then he's like, and, and everyone that's available to them is that we can be justified by God as a gift of grace through Jesus Christ, through whom God put forth as a perpetuation by his blood. There is the, there's the hyssop, there's being cleansed with hyssop again, by his blood to receive by faith. This was to show you that God's righteousness, because of his divine forbearance, had passed over the former sins, more Passover language, and it was shown his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This morning, this, there is good news for the sinner. This morning, there is good news for the sinner that we are justified, that we are made right before God. And so do not continue in your sin any longer. Do not remain where you are because God has brought salvation and he's brought restoration. And David kind of makes this turn in a psalm where he cries out and after this place where he says, cleanse me with hyssop, and this kind of this cry to be saved by God, he, he receives this forgiveness, this peace that comes from God. And so he cries out the next natural thing. <laughs> and that is, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
And so this is just the natural progression of the believer, is that we start off as a sinner, we enter into this place where we recognize our sin, where we acknowledge our sin, we confess our sins to one another, we confess our sins to God, we put our faith in Jesus who has covered over us, who has passed over us, and then the next natural response is to not stay there, to not stay in this place of guilt and shame and and low self-worth where we take on the identity, but instead we are to cast it off. And it's this, this prayer and this call, God, make me new. Don't let me stay the way that I've always been. Do not let me remain in my sin. And we see this in 2 Corinthians. It's actually going to be on the screen. You want to throw that one up in 2 Corinthians? Maybe it's the, do you have that one? Maybe not. Yeah, it's right there. Awesome. So yeah, this is the verse. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. This is the movement that David is making throughout the psalm, and this is the movement that we get to make also with David, is that we get to move with him as he creates us new with him. In Ezekiel chapter 36, there's this beautiful verse. It's one of my favorite verses in the book of Ezekiel. It says this. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness, From all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and I will give you a new spirit to put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all of my rules. You shall rule in the land that I have given to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Our God sees your sin. And he is not far off. He is not far away. And he has not cast you aside. But he is inviting you to set that down. To be gutted by it. And to come to him and allow him to transform your heart. I want to encourage you guys this week. Just meditate. If, you, if you're in this place where it's like, God, I need you to heal me. Just, I believe that there is healing in Psalm 51. If you were just to pray that over your life. That you would pray that in your soul this week, that God would bring healing and restoration to you. And so from this place of renewal and restoration, he exclaims praise. And he says that I can't keep this to myself. If God, you do this in me, you do this work of salvation in me, I'm not going to keep it to myself anymore. So just as sin has effect on the world and it affects our relationship, so does salvation. So does reconciliation with God. It restores our relationships with one another. It restores our relationships with our cities and with our brothers and with our sisters. And this is why God has called us to be a people of reconciliation. That we would go and restore those relationships. (laughs) And so he says this. He says, Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And so the question I have for us this morning is, are we living in the joy of the salvation that God has given us? Have we allowed ourselves, like David, to be gutted by our sin? Because we have to see how big our sin is. Because if we minimize our sin, guess what also gets minimized? Our salvation and our redemption and the life that we have in Jesus. And so we have to look at it for what it is, but we don't get to stay there and we have to take on this new life that Jesus has for us, and we get to celebrate that with joy and thanksgiving and celebration. And so the author 
of Hebrews invites us into this. He invites us into this in Hebrews 13, 12. It says this, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify his people with his own blood. That means to make us holy. So David was not holy, but it says that Jesus came to make us holy. It says, therefore, let us go out, go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And through him, then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, let the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do what is good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to the Lord. And so this is how David ends his psalm. He ends his psalm praising God because God came through. God said, David, I'm not going to remove you from your throne. He says there's going to be a bunch more war to come. And that's why David ends his prayer praying for the city of Jerusalem. He's praying that God would have mercy on his city and that God would not hold the consequences of his sin against his city and against the people. David knows that his sin that was once in isolation now has effects to the entire public. And he knows that the only way that those repercussions can get ended and justice can come is for God to do it. And the same is true for us. And all the ways that we might want to make right, all the ways that we've done wrong, it's impossible for us. But the good news is that Jesus has come and he has done it. And he's inviting us to step into that this morning with him. So as we close, I want us to end with a note of praise. Thanking God for, oh God, I am such a sinner. But because of you and what you've done, I no longer associate with that, but I am a son. I am a daughter of you. Would you guys pray with me? Dear God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time to get into your word and to read Psalm 51. God, I pray that you'd put your words on our heart this week. God, that we would be a person of this prayer. That we would be a person that seeks you, that seeks your mercy and your justice and your grace. God, that where there is shame, that where there is guilt, that you would move us to a place of repentance. And God, that we would throw that off, that we would take off the old self and put on the new that's made available to you. And God, I pray that we would trust in you. God, that you have done it that you have saved us. In your name we pray. Amen.